Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Since 2013, Bombus has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombus donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombus.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Rule of Law podcast brought to you by Matrix Chambers in association with Prospect Magazine. I'm Richard Hermer here with my colleague Helen Mountfield. Well, it's been a while since our last podcast, explained by one of the joys of being a civil law barrister, which is long summer holidays. Over the summer, it was pretty hard to find good news from a rule of law perspective, as courts come under ever more pressure to bow to authoritarian minded regimes. And another example to which we might turn this season is Guatemala, where the rule of law is being systematically undermined by attacks on those few remaining independent judges. One bit of potentially good news is Kenya, where the Supreme Court entered the fray to determine a hotly contested election result. Their judgment, at least for now, seems to have generated sufficient respect to play a material role in avoiding the wide scale bloodshed that has been the hallmark of some previous elections, perhaps a role played in part by the credibility it gained in a previous decision in 2017 to bravely declare an election null and void. Now, Kenya marks a convenient segue into the main topic of today's podcast, which is colonialism and the law. 2005 marked the publication of a groundbreaking book, Imperial Reckoning, the untold story of Britain's gulag in Kenya, by Caroline Elkins, who had spent many years not just in the archives, but in villages throughout Kenya, collecting testimonies of those alleging they had suffered atrocities at the hands of the British colonial administration. Brilliantly researched, the book won the Pulitzer Prize for nonfiction in 2006 and was the source for a whole-scale change in the way that many understood British rule in Kenya, in which mass repression and violence, including the systemic use of torture, were official and semi-official policies of the colony. Caroline's work wasn't just for the academy. Her expert evidence played a pivotal role in the claim brought by over 3,000 victims of British mistreatment, which was launched here in 2009, and in which, in 2012, after two court victories in the High Court, led to an historic settlement in which the United Kingdom not simply paid compensation to the victims, but an apology was delivered to them on the floor of the House of Commons, and the government committed to building a monument to the victims in central Nairobi. Caroline is now a professor of history and African and African-American studies at Harvard University, and her new book, Legacy of Violence, 
has been recently published a huge critical acclaim. It widens the lens of the examination of the British colonial period, looking not just at Kenya, but a range of countries in which Britannia presumed to rule, exposing the systemic use of repression and violence and asking profound questions about the ongoing impact of the imperial project and our own failure to acknowledge the debts that we owe. And I am delighted that Caroline is able to join us today to discuss these issues, which are particularly important to publicise in what over here on this side of the pond is Black History Month. And mindful, as no doubt we're going to discuss with Caroline, that one can't begin to uh, understand the British colonial project without appreciation of how racism uh, impacted almost every element of it. Caroline, thank you so much for joining us. Richard, what an on honor and privilege to be here with you again. It's uh, after many years of work, it's just a delight to be able to talk ideas with you. Well, Caroline, I, I definitely want to talk uh, about the substance and those kind of ideas that every page of your book um, raise. But can I just kind of start fittingly, because you're a professor of history, with um, asking you kind of a broad historical question to help contextualise the discussion we are going to have, which is, could you just give us a kind of a brief historical overview of what the British colonial, I mean, I'm asking you for several hundred years, but what the British colonial project was, what kind of period we're talking about, and also what were the main motivations for it from the British state perspective. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, just in very broad brushstrokes, Richard, the, you know, we think of the first British empire, if you will, as the empire of white settlement, right? We think of the, the what becomes the United States, Australia, New Zealand. But after 1776 in the US and uh, the American Revolution, there's a, a decided turn to the east, um, looking toward India and eventually to places like Africa, the Middle East and elsewhere, which becomes what is thought of as the second empire. And when we think about this empire, it is vast. In fact, so vast, it's the largest empire in human history, encompassing nearly a quarter of the world's landmass, um, nearly 700 million colonial subjects. And of course, for a long period of time, the British are looking very much to extend, if you will, economic control over large swaths of the world. But what we do see decidedly by the 19th century, and this is the point at which my book picks up, the 19th century is really a turn towards a much more sort of also political or social project, if you will, this idea of the civilizing mission, that somehow or another Britain with its, its quote unquote liberal imperialism was really decidedly exceptional to all other empires in that it was not just about sort of economic extraction, but instead it was about transforming the black and brown populations of the world, if you will, Kipling's white man's burden. And What's the kind of time period in which we're we're addressing here? This is post Britain's role in the slave trade. It's post the uh, American Revolution. When's the kind of onset of kind of classic British colonialism? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, certainly where I pick up within my own book and what we should be thinking about is that this the 19th century, the Victorian era, right, becomes a very sort of, if you will, neat dividing line. There's often held up that, hey, you know, Britain, Britain spearheaded the end, the abolition of the trade and enslaved peoples and the use of enslaved labor. Quite true. At the same time, on the heels of that, we see the introduction of what I just mentioned to you a moment ago, the civilizing mission that somehow or another, Britain is going to continue its march forward, continuing to expand the size of its empire. And in so doing is going to extract the labor 
as well as expropriate the land from vast swaths of, of populations, whilst at the same time ostensibly reforming them, ushering them into the modern world, making them, if you will, sort of, of, of in the mold of, of British middle-class citizens. And so therefore, you know, that's mid 19th century. And we really push all the way through until well into the, uh, the aftermath of the Second World War, into the 60s, early 70s, the first three decades of the late Queen Elizabeth II's reign were consumed with end of empire wars. And so some would say empire still continues in different forms. Just ask Boris Johnson, he peddled empire, uh, you know, Brexit on empire 2.0. And so, but you know, in terms of formal empire, we really date sort of the end to the, to the late 60s and 70s. Uh, we'll come back um, perhaps towards the end of our discussion to, to, to Brexit and Boris Johnson and can you, draw, can you kind of join the dots? But can I just ask you about one issue that you raise in your book, which is a kind of a form of liberal paradox. So we've got, at the time of the 19th century, the emergence of the nation state, we've got the idea within Great Britain of liberalism, of self-determination, the beginnings, the movements of self-determination as we move towards enfranchisement here, whereas precisely the opposite is going on as part of the colonial project. And how is that circle squared? Is it because we are bringing as a long-term project, that hope to what would be described as uncivilized lands by the colonialists, or do they do they seek to square that circle or not? Mm. You know, such an important question, Richard, and one that really, frankly, I, I wrestled with for years, right? And, and that vexed, certainly vexed, towering figures like John Stuart Mill in the 19th century, where raging debates went on about how do they imagine the kinds of reforms that were being undertaken, as you just outlined so clearly, in Britain at the time with what happens when liberalism washes up on distant shores? What happens when it confronts black and brown colonial subjects? And suddenly the claims of liberalism begin to wither. And the ways in which um, they reconciled this was through this notion that kind of evolution, a developmentalist model, that someday black and brown colonial subjects will be like us, right? White, you know, sort of white Britons, but not yet. And that not yet is going to take generations, if not more to come. And it's going to happen under the close and watchful eye of British tutelage. Now, of course, you know, remember not yet, not only is it supposed to take generations to come, but really and truly not yet almost never comes. And the important part is, is that this developmentalist model, this idea of bringing along black and brown subjects is inscribed in almost everything, legal documents, whether it's speeches to parliament, the notion of, of Indians toddling behind Britons, this sort of childlike and familial language inscribes nearly everything around the empire, all the way down to how the monarch talks about the empire. The monarch is the patriarch or the matriarch of the empire. Queen Elizabeth is anointed the Empress of India, the, the monarch of India, you know, in the late 19th century. And so it's very important to point out this, this, this reconciling of this conundrum between how do we how do we sort of square the circle of what's going on with, at home with what's going on in empire? The fulcrum is that is around developmentalism, and the basis of that is race. And so therefore, if we think about that spectrum of whites at one end, the blackest and darkest of Africans at the other, and everybody else in between who eventually one day will become like white Britons. So it's premised upon the kind of deeply racist assumption that they're not as good as us. And our role, God-given role, is to try to make them as much like us as we possibly can. Is that the kind of one of the philosophical deeply racist underpinnings of the problem. Unquestionably. How do we turn the uncivilized them into civilized us? And that really encompasses, and, and but the problem becomes around that is how do you then square the circle 
around both reform. So this is a deeply reformist project with what I'm quite interested in, extraordinary levels of violence. And how do we, what I'm interested in is how do we keep them in the same frame? Because the easy explanation is to say it's all window dressing. But the fact of the matter is, if you read the documents, and many people believed in this reform, from the missionaries to colonial officials and the like, and that becomes our problem. How do we take this fundamental belief and square it with, with the violence? Helen? Uh, I'm interested in, in what people are frightened of, maybe the subliminal roots of this kind of law, is, is the violence, because colonialists were always in a minority and numerical minority in the, in the countries that colonialized but had a vast majority of power and I'm thinking of the law in India colonial law in India where unlike anywhere else in the empire the census characterized people by their religion and in Hindu in case of Hindus caste and it was almost as a divide and rule thing it's let's keep the violence away from us and control the violence between groups but nowhere else in the empire everywhere else in the empire you were a farmer or a shopkeeper or business person whatever you were but in India the first thing you were asked was about that identity which was such a divisive thing there Um, and I do wonder if that's part of um, the subliminal roots of this that you need to use law as an instrument of control because you can't you don't have power to power (laughs) yeah Absolutely. And very, you know, you're touching on some very important points, right? The first of which is, let's start with the the most fundamental premise is all empires are violent. That's number one, Britain's included. The second of which is when any state claims sovereignty over another territory, it is claiming also the right to control the mechanisms of violence, right? And that's a classic sort of Weber idea about the state. The state controls legitimate violence. But what's very interesting, the third point that I would add to that is that At the time, whether it's lawmakers, colonial officials, philosophers, they're speaking about violence in the language of reform. Now, how do they do that? Well, we think about sort of, you know, there's the term, for example, the moral effect of violence. So therefore, Helen, if we think about what they're doing, you know, in instances, you know, like Amritsar in India, Dyer literally uses the term, we are deploying violence because of its moral effect, quote unquote. And, the, and so therefore, the idea that somehow or another violence subdues, violence civilizes. And, you know, if we think about sort of in the biblical sense, right, the very Victorian notion of spare the rod, spoil the child. And so this idea that violence adheres to the liberal project and is, and is part and parcel of the ways in which they're going to be reforming uncivilized populations. So it serves both a very clear state function of maintaining sovereignty, right, and at the same time, a developmentalist function in, in bringing along subject populations. But there's also, isn't there, I mean, looking at it from kind of through the kind of human rights experience, which is violence is easy when you don't treat the person you're inflicting it on as, as good as you. So if you, in the colonial context, if through racism you think people are not as human or deserving as respect as you are, it's easier to be violent. It's, you know, you can find parallels in a, in a whole host of, you know, scenarios where you dehumanise your enemy. It makes violence much easier. You dehumanise Jews in respect for the Holocaust. You, it's, you, you, you dehumanise Hutus in respect of Rwanda. And you're able to do that in the colonial context because it's so premised upon this concept of racial superiority that allows you to treat entire populations as school children because you think they're subhuman. Is that, I mean, is that an oversimplification of how race and racism can explain violence on the, on the, on the one hand, 
and the philosophical notion that we're here to improve the lot on the mm -hmm, other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I would add to that, Richard, the, the idea that if we think about this, you know, sort of as a spectrum, right, with the, the, the brown and black school children on, on, if you will, on one end, white Britons on the other. If we look at the end with the black and brown school children, it's, it's not a far slide, if you will, to dehumanize them, right? Because they're already at the far end of humanity spectrum. And that dehumanization typically happens when the state is threatened, right? When the state is threatened with rebellion, when the state is threatened with labor strikes, suddenly the criminalization, the dehumanization of people who frankly are, are you know, their cries of freedom, their demands to actually have liberalism applied to them, that they are in fact, you know, equal to in the eyes of sort of justice to their British colonial overlords. And so therefore, yes, we do see this elision into dehumanization. We see that happening over and over and over again, right? We see that happening. We just mentioned the case of, of India, but you know, we can go through it. You know, South Africa, the Arab revolt, Ireland, and that's what much of the book traces, how, how we end up, how we see this happening, this pattern happening over and over and over again. And, and as we know, institutions don't learn very well, right? And this ideology is the through line, if you will, all the way from the mid 19th century to frankly, close to the present day. Can I, I'm just interested in what you were saying, um, Richard, about using law to dehumanize and other people. And I'm thinking about um, the Nazi project, which is very much a kind of regime through law, but I'm, I'm interested, and I just don't know the answer to this, but you may, Caroline, the, whether the legal framework for the British Empire was was stricter than the than the legal framework for other um, empires at the time, the empire, French Empire, or whether they operated in a similar way. Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, the <laughs> I'll start with the book decidedly says it's not a, a work of comparison, but let's compare. Um, and I think one of the things that I'm very clear about, and that is, liberal imperialism may look like and feel like at the time fascism, but it's not the same thing. And yes, in fact, the, the Nazi empire draws from the British empire in different ways, both in practice as well as in legal, in some of the legal code. But I think one thing to your, to your point, that is um, whether it's a, a liberal empire and a, a fascist one somewhere in between, law becomes exceedingly important. And one of the things that I think is important also for our conversation, and that is so often in the British empire and in liberal democracies in general, when we see violence around race, it's often explained as sort of uh, an effect of racial capitalism, right? This extractive capability of capitalism from black and brown populations. And what I'm suggesting to us is, wait a minute, I don't disagree with that necessarily, but it's not the only explanation because we're seeing violence in places we don't expect to see it, in claims of reform, in promises of freedom. That's where we're seeing the violence, not just on the plantations, not just in the labor strikes. And to me, that begs the question of where, how does law provide a vehicle for this? How does law enable Britain to execute this level of violence? And to me, that's where we get to a much bigger questions about what is the relationship between violence and law in a liberal state, particularly in the context of empire. Well, that takes me to the kind of the, 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 the next subject, which is the extent to which the colonial project kind of utilized law to sanitize what it was doing, the extent to which mass appropriation of land, taking natural resources, through to violence and repression, to what degree the imperial project sought to wrap that within a legal framework, 
or the extent to which that was done kind of extrajudicially. But, you know, the extent to which law was a weapon of the colonial project. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the I think we're zeroing in on something very important, which is at the time and even all the way down the present day, when we we hear discussions about the British Empire, particularly that, you know, in the arguments about was it a good thing or not around its deployment of rule of law across the world. And even in the 19th century, where we had two different towering philosophers, John Stuart Mill on the one hand and James Fitzjames Stephen on the other, arguing over violence in the empire, they both agreed that the basis of good government was rule of law, number one. And so never forget that the way in which, in fact, in some ways, empire is scaffolded is through law. The way in which you define sovereignty, the way in which you define subject population's relationship to the state. And then ultimately, of course, you know, the, the question becomes, how is it within the law that violence is enabled and, made, and rendered legitimate? And something in the book that I call legalized lawlessness, which for you know, human rights folks is sort of the idea of the patina of law, right? But, but the idea that when we ran into instances, and it happened consistently, where laws on the books could not provide the kind of legal coverage needed for security forces to, en to enact a range of, of frankly, brutal practices, new laws were put into effect. And when those were not sufficient, then martial law was declared, which is, there's a huge literature on that, which is in effect, in some ways, an absence of law. But then eventually statutory martial law or states of emergency come into play in the 1930s. And what ends up happening is that these are considered exceptional. But what happens is the state of exception is so routine that the exception becomes the norm. But never forget, everything is based on law. A state of emergency had in, in Palestine about 149 pages of emergency codes, legal codes. And so getting back to the rule of law, yes, good government, if you will, this, this government was respectful in that it was based on law, but law was enabling extraordinary levels of violence time and time again across time and space in the British Empire. Yeah, it's just another re reminder if one needed it that rule of law in itself doesn't really help from a human rights. So of itself and in itself isn't the answer to a human rights perspective. Precisely. You can have vile regimes mm -hmm. doing the worst sorts of things, yeah. but in a way that under that regime's rules are lawful. Yep. Can I, can I ask Caroline just to kind of, because not everybody will have a sense of it, the degree of systemic repression and violence within the empire, particularly perhaps as, in the, in the kind of the post-World War II period or around that period in which there's growing moves um, for independence within lots of the colonies and protectorates. Yeah, the, I mean, the scale and scope is enormous, Richard. Look, I wrote an 800-page book and barely scratched the surface on the amount of violence in different locales across the empire. And I was sort of picking and choosing different examples uh, to give a sense of the range. But, you know, if we're looking post-World War II, as I said before, for the first 30 years of Queen Elizabeth II's reign, Britain was embroiled in, in violent end-of-empire wars, right? And so post-World War II, we begin with, you know, certainly Indian partition, Palestine. Uh, we move on to Malaya and then Kenya and Cyprus and British Guiana and Nyasaland. Um, we have conflicts in Oman. I mean, I could go on and on, right? And, and these are full-blown states of emergency. There are other places where sort of smaller and lower level hot wars are being fought. And, you know, eventually what ends up happening is it's not until Macmillan comes into power. You know, one of the things that it's, it's very important to bear in mind, and that is post-World War II, Britain is desperately trying to hang on to empire. This is not some kind of lovely 
sort of Whiggish historical story of progress, where after World War II, there's this gradual move towards decolonization. No, I mean, Britain is under, remember, this transcends uh, political party, under the Attlee regime, with Bevan as foreign minister, declares a policy of imperial resurgence. Britain is in the financial crapper. It is claiming desperately to hang on to its big three status, and it intentionally is going to do so on the backs of its colonized population. And therefore, it's doing everything it can to hang on, and the way it's going to have to hang on is through violence, because post-World War II, colonized populations, to be quite reductive, because these wars are complicated, there's civil dimensions and the like, but are having no more of it, and they want their independence. And this is, in some ways, this is an overdetermined situation, and it's an overdetermined situation that costs Britain dearly in terms of money, political uh, uh, resources, manpower, opportunity costs, rather than having most of its able-bodied young men at home in the factories and, and kickstarting the economy. They're off fighting these unwinnable wars. And it becomes a real problem such that by the end of the 1950s, when violence is truly exposed, um, in Kenya in particular, in some ways, it's the beginning of the end of the British Empire, and they rapidly move towards decolonization. But not until we go through, as I said, 30 years of excruciating, long, drawn-out conflicts around the globe. Helen. Can I ask you both about the way law then can be used as a tool of accountability for this? I know you were involved in the Mau Mau litigation. I mean, you know, moving on from the, that systemic violence, how, how has this played out in, in more recent creative uses of law? I'll let Richard pick up. He's the lawyer on the Mau Mau case, so I will turn to him. But I, I will point out that at the time, the European Convention on Human Rights was used quite ingeniously by, by lawyers in Cyprus. So at that time, the, Britain was masterful at setting up various derogation clauses and the like to get out of the scrutiny of the European Commission. And at that point, only states could petition other states. There was not individual petition. But what happened is they, the Cypriot lawyers gathered together significant cases of torture, and the Greek government brought the British government up under the European Convention in the late 1950s um, for torture. And the way Britain got out of it was to decolonize, <laughs> and the case never went. You know, the the European the, uh, under the conventions, the case was allowed to go forward, and it ends with decolonization. But the law becomes extremely important for people on the ground at the time in the 1950s. But in the case of Kenya, and I'll hand it over to Richard, there was simply not the kind of local know-how. There was simply not the kind of local, um, you know. Uh, international legal scene that allow for the same kind of, of, if you will, petitioning. And of course, Kenya at that point was not part of, and still isn't part of the, the, the European Convention, so there's nothing they could do about it. So fast forward to 2009, and Richard and company come on board and devise a brilliant legal strategy. And Richard, I'll turn it over to you. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the background to that, of course, was in Kenya. The, the Mau Mau were a prescribed organization during years of dictatorship in, in Kenya. Um, which also kind of held back any kind of really kind of strong moves to publicize what had happened, um, to raise the human rights struggle there, let alone seek redress. I mean, I, I became involved, I should say, Caroline was much more central to it than I was. I was just, the, I just did the talking in court. But, and I came to it ignorant, which is another theme we're going to come to in a minute, really, of kind of colonial history, and slightly cynical when I first was kind of told about the extent of systemic torture, of um, unlawful detention of tens of thousands, and um, trying to think about a way to provide a legal remedy. So rather than using, as the colonialists did, law as a, as, as, as a weapon of repression to try and use it as a kind of a means of securing 
redress and accountability. And we brought a straightforward tort claim effectively, trying to argue that the UK government in London was so intricately involved in the repression and mistreatment, including systemic torture, that they bore um, legal responsibility. And we had two hearings in the High Court in London, one about whether or not a duty could exist in law, and the court held in a fascinating judgment that it could. And then another about on limitation, because obviously this was kind of 60 years on, and the government perhaps unsurprisingly took a limitation point. And again, we won on that, you know, in large measure, I should say, because of Caroline's work, both in terms of showing the extent of the systemic violence in a way that was absolutely unarguable, showing the role of British knowledge about it, but also just showing the kind of wealth of information from a limitation perspective as well. The wealth of limitation helped when uh, additional evidence that had been stored in somewhere called Hanslope Park was suddenly discovered halfway through the case, throwing more light uh, upon British culpability. So that was an extraordinary, for me, extraordinary way into understanding the British colonial project, the impact that it had upon victims, the role that race and racism played in it. And it was a case that that, that settled, as I said in the intro, on not just traditional terms of compensation, but through some measures to kind of deal with the restorative justice in terms of apology, memorialization. If you have time, I'll talk a little bit about what that memorialization looked like in real time. But Caroline, that was kind of one case in respect to Kenya. But obviously, the colonial project was much broader than Kenya, as your new book so uh, elegantly um, sets out. Why do you think law hasn't been able to provide redress for all of those? From a, from a historian's perspective, is there an answer? There may be a legal answer, but what about from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, if we sidestep the, the legal answer, because I think you two would know better, but you know, some of my understanding is that there's a 1948 dividing line as to when sort of how far back we can go from, for, from a legal claim standpoint. Both from a, from a historical, from an evidentiary standpoint, potential cases are overwhelming. I mean, and in fact, I'm not sure if you just saw, I had it just come across the transcript, BBC published a report that Palestinians are looking for acknowledgement reparations for the Arab revolt in the 1930s. And I can say, you know, one of the things that I was so, that that is a crucial element of this book is, you know, if we step back and take the Kenyan case, it was explained at the time or, or the arguments uh, were made when, when Imperial Reckoning was published in 2005 and the case was successful, that Kenya was an exception. It was an exception to everywhere else. There were these, those bloody settlers, et cetera. And, and, you know, I spent 15 years um, of research and writing to say Kenya actually it was just a moment in time in this longer durée. And in that long durée, Palestine in the 1930s, it's fundamental in terms of the practice and use of torture. It's absolutely fundamental for the basis of some of our conversation today in terms of law and rule of law. It is in Palestine in the 1930s that the statutory martial law or the state of emergency is, if you will, for lack of better terms, perfected. And it's there and it's that those legal codes, that 149 pages or so that I referred to a moment ago, that becomes the basis for everywhere else afterward. So Palestine for the Zionist revolt post-World War II, Kenya, as we've discussed, Malaya, Cyprus, British Guiana, et cetera, et cetera. 
And so to the point of, you know, are there claims to be made today from an historian standpoint? Absolutely. And I can only speak, I work on state-directed violence, but there's a lot of them. And, you know, my, both this book, as well as many, many other works from other historians provide ample, ample historical evidence for claims not dissimilar to what we saw in Kenya. So I want to just turn it conversation a bit, if I may. So from the idea of using law for redress to using law in the broader sense of accountability. And let me explain what I mean. I touched before that when I first, you know, 15 plus years ago, um, was asked to look at the Mau Mau case, I came with kind of complete ignorance. I mean, I knew about imperialism. I came from a kind of a progressive perspective where I thought it was a bad idea, but didn't really know much about the detail. And we live in a country in which notions of empire as a good thing don't just exist in sort of certain levels of the Tory government, but are really kind of widely spread. And I grew up in a school in which empire was kind of taught as being, a, you know, generally a good thing. And we seem to have this kind of my, myopia in this country, or certainly collective amnesia when it comes to our collective past, gain equally in respect of the slave trade and our role in the slave trade. Here, we just tend to learn about our role in abolishing it rather than 200 years that preceded it. From your kind of perspective as someone who's worked in this field, what, what, what do you make of this sense of amnesia or lack of knowledge or even lack of interest? Yeah, it's, again, Richard, it's an important question. And, you know, I think I would urge a reframing of, in some ways, a reframing of the broader national question, which, you know, and right now the broader national question seems to be around, was empire good or a bad thing? Whereas I would urge folks to be thinking about, look, there's, it's overwhelming, the historical evidence of how systemic this violence was and how encoded it was in the liberal project, cleaving to it. So the question really is, how and why was the British Empire so violent? What was it that was particular about the British liberal imperialism? And in what ways, if any, does that contribute to the kinds of inequities that we see encoded in law all the way down to the present day? Because this idea of subject populations, brown and black populations who are you know, deemed uncivilized relative to British colonizers, that, that same notion can wash up onto British shores. And it, and it did post-1948, beginning with Windrush. This idea that somehow or another within the law or within populations, there are those who are not yet civilized. And we see that playing out. And I can point to any metric for you. The, the levels of incarceration, the stop and frisk, all these sorts of things. And so really the question becomes is, why is it that this developmentalism continues to adhere in the way that law is being applied? Why is it that violence is an acceptable measure within liberal societies? And why is it that it is largely applied to non-white populations. And to me, those are the questions we should be asking ourselves because the good or bad thing gets us nowhere. The balance sheet doesn't tell us anything. And quite frankly, it really is a red herring to the much larger and more salient issues that are at play and ones in which many, many people are, are still trying to figure out how is it that these liberal societies, and, and I would include my own, the United States, and we could sort of take this whole idea and take it further to other, to other places. But to me, Richard, that's where we need to be taking ourselves in terms of how we're thinking about empires in the past and the ways in which it's informing the present. Is that because you, in order to buy into this notion of British exceptionalism or American exceptionalism, you can only do that if you, if you ignore history. Yeah, entirely. You have to willfully ignore the ways in which, and importantly, 
state-directed violence. I'm not talking about casual everyday violence. I'm not talking about talking about state-directed violence. You have to willfully ignore that. And the evidence is so overwhelming that it, it becomes a kind of, to your point, it's, it's a kind of amnesia suggests that there was a willful forgetting. It's as if this never happened in the first place. Right. It's a willful, you know, just ignoring of this. I worry that law. I, don't, I mean, I don't think, you know, as wonderful as legal cases are, I don't think I don't think law provides the way to do that. So, I mean, I had a moment of hope during the Mau case. We had those in the first hearing, we had three days in a row in which it's on the front page of The Times. It's got a separate editorial three days in a row on The Times. And I'm thinking here is a moment of national a chance for national reflection to ask the wider questions about empire and accountability. And then, of course, it raised headlines for that period of time. And then it becomes fish and chip paper. And before we know it, it's, it's uh, we're back to giving lots of editorial space to a Niall Ferguson book review about the glories of empire. Helen? I, I mean, I'm, I'm very interested in what reparation might look like and how law could frame that. And I do think there are a couple of ways. I mean, First, you're right, Richard. Every generation has to has to make these conversations real again. So I was struck because my other job is in a university that when George Floyd was murdered and students around the world said, what are you doing about coming to terms with the reality of on violence against black people and how are you educating about this? You know, these are adults, young adults who are 20. Many of them didn't know about Stephen Lawrence, who was the you know, equivalent black teenager in London in my part of London when I was growing, I was at school with. And so they, they, that's, that was already a, you know, a memory that was gone. But what came from the Stephen Lawrence case, because of the remarkable, remarkable efforts of um, Dorian and Neville Lawrence, his parents, was a provision, now a provision in the Equality Act. It started off in, as a Race Relations Amendment Act, but a duty to have due regard to the need to advance equality of opportunity, um, good relations between different people and to eliminate unlawful discrimination. And I do think that that can be used as a framing. And Wendy Williams did it with her review of what had gone wrong in the Home Office when Windrush Generation Britons had their nationality taken away because the records had been destroyed. And and she did look at what was wrong with the, the... lack of education in the Home Office about what had happened and what the background to these claims was and the, the terrible things that happened there. And the other, hey, Caroline, we're not talking about was it good, was it bad, but we're saying you have to give a whole truth and a whole truth is not white man's burden, nice people saying you seem poorer than us, shall we build you a railway? Yeah, I, th- I, I appreciate all that, Helen. And I think the, you know, and, and looping this into what Richard was just saying a moment ago, I think we also need to, to think about what change typically looks like, right? As an historian, if there's no change over time, I'm out of a job. Right. And so I think a lot about this. And, you know, yes, occasionally we see these kind of cataclysmic moments of, of change. Right. The Berlin Wall comes down, The you know, what, but for the most part, change is actually very incremental. And we think about, you know, and in some ways, and I shared your disappointment, Richard, in terms of the, the Mau Mau case, and maybe it was my own youthful naivete, there was going to be this big moment of colonial reckoning. But what I'm recognizing is that these power structures, the, the nature of the endemic racism and violence and hearing into the liberal system, it's, you know, it's, it's going to be more, I think it's going to look like death by a thousand cuts, where, you know, where each small party or plays who dedicates a lifetime of work, you know, there's this convergence. And I, you know, whether this is going to happen immediately, whether it's going to happen after our lifetime, but it will, I mean, change will come. And if it doesn't, and then we sort of get into sort of that whole Fanon idea that actually the whole liberal project is a failure. So why did the post-colonial states adopt it? But I think there's hope within the liberal project. 
and in part because of the law, because of what you were just saying, Helen, because of the Mau Mau case, the, 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 the mechanisms are there to, to enact this change. I'm going to grab that optimistic moment as a moment to draw the conversation to a close so we, we can end with a bit of hope for the future and perhaps the recommendation that every Secretary of State for Education in this country is mandated to read Legacy of Violence on their first, I was about to say first day, but it takes a little more than a day in office. Caroline, thank you so very much for joining us. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you so much. <laughs>